right, so yes, we're continuing. Uh, for those of you who are new, my name is Scott, although Riley just did that for me. Um, we are looking at the moment as a church at the book of 1 Peter, and we're in chapter 3 at the moment. And we're, uh, I want to start off by just thinking about the situation that we're in. I was a little bit annoyed uh, when I heard the sermon last week that Sam yeah, took the starting thing that I was going to use for my sermon. But uh, <laughs> we're, we're in the middle of the moment uh, of a crazy time in our culture where... Christianity is becoming increasingly more difficult to live out, increasingly more unpopular in our society. And one of the things I find really interesting is that the, some of the bellwether places where that uh, conflict is starting to appear is in football. Uh, we saw with uh, Andrew Thorburn, the CEO of the Essendon Bombers, having to step down. Sam mentioned that last week, and it's Sam. Uh, but... <laughs> Also, we saw it with the, the Manly Pride jersey uh, fiasco earlier this year, which has also been mentioned from this pulpit. Uh, but recently, I was noticing in the media that the Manly Pride jersey uh, thing has come up again, because all of the players who are involved in... Sorry, not all, but some of the players who were involved in that have actually gone off to the Rugby League World Cup in the UK. And now they're being interviewed by the media over there. And I guess because they feel a little bit more at liberty to speak without the Australian press around and all of their team handlers, they've spoken quite freely about it. And there's a player who plays for Manly uh, named Josh Alloyer, who, when he was giving his version of events uh, as to what happened with refusing to wear a jersey that was, uh, uh, what's the word, endorsing pride, I suppose, uh, when he re uh, refused to wear that, he said it was just a matter of him living out his faith and that's what he wanted. Uh, and, but at the end of that, he then spoke about another former NRL player and called him an idiot. And so it was this awkward thing where here's a man who's trying to take a stand for his Christian faith, and yet at the end of that statement, he needlessly calls another man an idiot. And it just made him look like the fool. And then a week after that, Jake Trebojevic, another manly player, who is like the most beloved player in the NRL, despite the fact that he plays for the most hated team, um, which is the team that I go for, unfortunately. Uh, well, fortunately for me, uh, not at the moment. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, it was a bad year. Uh, he came out and he said of Josh Alloyer, his biggest thing is religion. My biggest thing is footy. And I feel like that's a pretty good summation of Australian society for a lot of people. Uh, what is the biggest thing for our society? And where you find the answer to that question, you then find the way that people are going to live their lives. You're going to find the things that they think are most important. Uh, for the players who chose not to wear the pride jersey, the thing that was directing that decision, the thing that uh, made them feel at liberty to step out into the public eye and say, I'm not going to live the way that the world wants, it's because their biggest thing was not footy. Their biggest thing was not pleasing their football managers. Their biggest thing was living for Christ. And yet we saw that even they failed to do it perfectly. But our society's biggest thing is not Christ. And that's why 1 Peter is such a pertinent book for us, because 1 Peter is written to the exiles living in the, book, uh, in the, in the area called Asia Minor. It's uh, written to the, the earliest Christians living in Turkey, in a non-Christian world in the uh, Roman Empire, and they are living as though they are exiles. They're living as people who don't belong in their society, people for whom Christian faith is not the norm and will make them stand out as different. And that's the situation we find ourselves in. That's what we've been talking about for so many weeks as we look at the book of 1 Peter. But as we step into this passage now, uh, Peter really 
is focusing in on what it looks like to live out faithfully as Christians in a world that does not want us to live for Christ. So I want to remind you, just by way of uh, introduction, what Peter has gone on to say so far. He's introduced uh, his book to the exiles living in Asia Minor, and he said that we are chosen people. Uh, that, that famous passage at the start of 1 Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, which is kept in heaven for us. Uh, And our faith in this is like precious gold that even though it's refined by fire, uh, will last forever. That's kind of the big picture that Peter paints of what situation we find ourselves in as Christians. Christ has died for us. He has rose again. He has given us a calling into an eternal inheritance, and our faith in him is now going to go through a testing period, as though it's being refined by fire. But that's okay, because we have been called into a holy life to reject our old sinful desires and be sprinkled with the blood of Christ. We are now cleansed. We are now given a new life to live. And we are now the living stones being built into God's temple, patterned after that cornerstone, Christ, who gives us the the example to follow of what it looks like to live for God in a world that hates you, that hates Christ. And that call permeates every aspect of our lives. It, It permeates the personal the marital, the civic, every single aspect of our lives has now been called upon by Christ. And we're in this situation where Christ has given us a new hope, a new life to live, and yet we're living it out in a world that doesn't want any of it. And that's where our passage, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, opens up. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, I'll be reading quickly now from verses 13 to 17. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that be God's will, than for doing evil. I've got three main points that I want to highlight from our passage today. The first one is fearless commitment. The second is faithful witness. And the third is meaningful suffering. Uh, The first thing that Peter says, and this comes off the back very much of the passage Sam preached on last week, uh, this idea that we have a call to live for Christ in this world, and yet that call to live for Christ is a call to live an honourable and good life before the face of God. And that will then result in God looking upon us with favour. We sung about it this morning. In fact, in many ways, I could have just not preached today because the songs Henry picked were so apt to make the points that I want to talk about today. Uh, so thank you for that, Henry. It was uh, excellent. Uh, but the, the... What was I saying? Um, Oh yes, if we live for God, he will look in favour upon us. But it's not just that. Now Peter goes on to say, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Uh, If you live for Jesus, if you live the way that Jesus calls you to live, that that will cause us to live a life that is 
uh, respected in some ways by the world around us because we will be living gently, we will be living in a loving way, we will be slow to anger, quick to listen, all of the many things that Christ calls us to do. Uh, And Proverbs uh, 16 verse 7 sums up this uh, quite nicely when it says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he will make even his enemies to be at peace with him. And that's kind of the idea that Peter's talking about here. If, if you live in a way that is good, if you are zealous for good things, if you want to show love and care and respect for all people, then you are actually minimizing your chances of ending up with enemies in this world. Because uh, uh, a, lot of enemy, a lot of enmity that forms amongst people in this world is because of people being hateful, retributive, quick to anger, all of the things that are the opposite of how Christ calls us to live. And so as Christians, we have a calling to live a life that really should be a pleasant one in this world. Uh, We should be able to live lives that don't get the ire of the world up because we're living ways that people can look at and go, that person is living a good life, that person's a a good guy or a good girl or whatever the case may be. Uh, But the, the problem with that way of thinking, it's not a complete way of thinking because we are living out the light of God when we live that way in a world of darkness, and the darkness is exposed by the light. The darkness hates the light. The darkness does not want the light to shine amongst it. When we live lives of moral uprightness in this world, it shines a mirror or holds up a mirror to a world of brokenness and sin and separation from God. And there's only a certain amount to which you can do that before you start to be noticed. Uh, And worse than that, as we saw with the Manly Pride jersey uh, debacle, I I call it a debacle because it ruins my team's chances for the year, Um, you have to take a stand in the way that you live. The way that you live is going to put you in one camp or another. Uh, Charles Taylor, a Canadian philosopher, talks about uh, our worlds having things called social imaginaries, which is essentially the way that you live your life uh, gets so incorporated into your belief system that all of the ways you think, all of the choices you make, they are tied up intrinsically with what you find to be most important. And how you live feeds into your beliefs, and your beliefs feed into how you live. They become so um, intertwined that it's actually impossible to separate out your big thing from what is most important to you, from how you live, the rituals that you live out in your life. And so our society, we can see the rituals of what our society values in things like, where do you spend your money? Where do you spend your time? How do you talk? Uh, Where do you visit every week? And for our society, it's things like uh, football teams, it's things like shopping centres, it's things like what TV shows they watch, what values you uphold publicly, what you think is okay, what you think is not okay. And for a Christian, if our biggest thing is Christ, if that has seeped into the very depths of who we are, then we will live those values out. We will live those values out in a way that is impossible to not notice. Uh, at, At the core of all reality is our religious convictions. If you're, no matter how you live, it says something about your religious convictions. It says something about what you value most and who you are at your deepest level. And eventually, it's going to get to the point where if we live that out consistently, we will find the world starts to hate us. Uh, Jesus said, sorry, before I say that, um, we've got to be careful as Christians to find the right balance between living in a way that honors God and living a way that is slow to anger, quick to love, quick to show honor and respect to people, even our enemies, and yet at the same time, living in a way that honors Christ. 
there's a balance to be struck between having no enemies because we live well and having no enemies because we're not actually living for Christ. Uh, Jesus said in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. But he predicts that we will have trouble. Uh, he also says in Luke chapter 6, verse 26, woe to you if men speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. And then finally, if the world hates you, know that they hated me before they hated you. Uh, so Peter, he says at the start of this passage, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? There's one extent to which that is true, because if we live good lives in this world, we are less likely to make enemies. But the flip side of that is, if we live for Christ, it's also inescapable that the world will take notice and the world will not like what it sees. And so he goes on to say, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now, the interesting thing about the way that Peter says that, it doesn't quite come across in the English, so I'm just going to give you a quick little Greek lesson. I apologize if this bores you, but um, there are different uh, moods for verbs. So uh, most of the time we talk about the indicative mood, like there's a microphone, there's a music stand, there's some sheet music, here's a lectern. Indicative, and then you've got imperative, go pick up the microphone stand, get me a cup of coffee, like command type language. Then you have subjunctive, which is where there's like a condition, like if, if it rains, I will get wet, that's a subjunctive mood. But then in Greek, they've got a special mood called the optative mood, which is, it's an if statement, but it's an if only statement. Like, if only someone would get me a cup of coffee. If only I could get an extra hour's sleep. That's called the optative mood. And it doesn't show up very much in um, the Bible even, but it does show up here. Uh, it says, even if you should suffer, and Peter uses a thing called the optative mood. So it's actually, if only you could, should suffer for righteousness' sake. Peter actually looks upon this idea of suffering for Christ with a, a kind of fondness, a kind of, like an eager expectation, like if only you should suffer for righteousness' sake. Uh, so it's good to live in the world without enemies. It's good to live in the world in a peaceful, quiet way, and that's what Peter calls Christians to do. But he also acknowledges that if you live for Christ, suffering will come. It's bound to. Uh, and Peter, this is the same man who, after um, being flogged uh, by the Sanhedrin for preaching Christ in the earliest days of, Christ of the Christian church in Jerusalem, he went away from that flogging with, I think it was John, uh, this is the language that gets used in Acts chapter 5, they went away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. Suffering in Peter's mind is actually a good thing for a Christian to live through. And it's a hard thought because suffering is not pleasant, it's not fun, we, we want to intrinsically avoid it. And sometimes suffering is something we should want to avoid because if we bring it upon ourselves, because we've done the wrong thing, like if you go around being a jerk to people and then they're angry at you and you suffer for that, that's entirely your fault. And Peter says in many places, that's not a good thing. In fact, he even says it in our passage. But on the flip side, if we suffer for good, that is actually a good thing. Now, that's actually something that God uses. And that goes right back to 1 Peter chapter 1, where he says, now, through, uh, now you are being... I'm just going to read it, because I'm going to forget the exact language. Uh, In this suffering you rejoice, 
Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's an acknowledgement by Peter that suffering is something that actually helps to put us back on the path that we're supposed to be on. It actually plugs us in to the the key reason that we are on this planet. We are made by God uh, to be saved through Christ and then to live for Him. That's the ultimate purpose of our lives. Uh, That is our biggest thing. And because of that, suffering is actually a tool that plugs us back into it. Uh, Some of you, though not all of you, will know that back in 2020, I was diagnosed with cancer. And uh, it was a a scary time for my family and I. It was a scary time for me. It was a a, a interesting time for our church, Riley having to look after his first kind of really sick member of his congregation and how that all played out. But there were moments when I... And it all came out good in the end, by the way. Just, um, But there were moments in that where between the time when I was diagnosed with cancer and when I went to get my surgery, I would be sitting there, especially at night, just reflecting on the fact that I could be dead in four years' time. Like, you know, that was a very likely outcome um, from uh, the situation that I found myself in, especially with the information I had at that time. And there were moments where I would be, through tears, for long periods of time, just praying to God, please save me, please Please don't let this be the way that I go, you know, and all sorts of variations on that. And that suffering, that time of struggle, and there were other things that Emma and I had to go through in that time as well, which many of you know about it. The last two or so years were a rough time for us. But during that time, I never felt any closer to Christ than any other time in my life. I never felt more plugged into the actual reason for why I'm on this planet. And since then, uh, we've had a beautiful daughter, we've got a house, I've got a job that I'm very much enjoying. Life is going well at the moment. But in these moments, the temptation for me to drift from Christ is much, much greater than it was. I feel less plugged into Him at times. I feel like I have to really strive to keep myself God-focused when life goes well. So there's a very strong sense in which suffering is actually a powerful tool that God uses to give us Um, that focus back in on what our lives are ultimately supposed to be about. And I think Peter's aware of that when he says things like, if only you should suffer for righteousness' sake, then you will be blessed. Uh, But the other thing, of course, is that, uh, and Peter talks about this in our previous passage from last week, the example of how to live with suffering was ultimately given to us by Christ. He was the one who lived the life of the deepest, most unjust suffering that any human has ever lived with, and yet he lived that out in a way that glorified God and held out the glory of God to the universe. And it was a powerful witness for all people to show what God values most and what is most blessed. And so there's two things going on. First of all, suffering is a powerful thing that God uses to work in our lives to bring us to Him. But then the second thing is that suffering is actually an intrinsically God-glorifying thing. And so suffering is good. And it's really hard to hear that uh, as Christians or as anyone, really, because we don't like it. We don't want to live it, and yet God uses it for amazing and powerful good. And I can can attest to that from my own life. But it's important for us to know that before we go through suffering, because I've seen so many people who, when they suffer, they get angry at God. They turn their back on Him, and they think, how could God possibly have done this to me? How is this fair? All of the 
the selfish kind of ways we can process suffering, and it results in our hearts moving further from him, uh, which is a tragedy when you see that happen in people's lives. So the first thing is, uh, yeah, suffering is something that we need to look at as Christians as a good thing. But then he goes on to say, uh, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And then he goes on to say, have no fear of them, them being the world, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Uh, The second little piece of uh, Greek that I wanted to bring out here is that where it says, have no fear of them, uh, in... In Greek, there's a thing called the genitive, uh, and genitive just basically is anything that would be represented by the English word of. Uh, And in Greek, in this passage, it just says, uh, do not fear the fear of them. That's kind of how it reads in Greek. Uh, Our passage has, uh, the, the ESV translates that as, have no fear of them, as in have no fear of the people. But he's actually quoting Isaiah here. Um, the, Isaiah chapter 8, verses 9 to 12, and I'll just quickly read it for you. It says this. Uh, it's in the context of Israel is about to be invaded by Assyria, and they're trying to decide who to trust. Do they trust in God, or do they trust in the armies that they're trying to ally themselves with? And God says this. Raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand, for God is with us. This is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. So uh, our passage has communicated this as don't fear what they fear, uh, sorry, do not fear them, do not fear the world that is hostile to Christ. But then the other side of it is do not fear what they fear. Uh, So the the genitive in Greek is just of in English. Um, It could be a subjective, don't fear what they fear, or it can be an objective, don't fear them, or it can be what's called a plenary genitive, which is both. Don't fear them and don't fear what they fear. And I feel like that is the best way to make sense of this passage. Uh, Peter is calling Christians to not plug themselves into the, the world's view, the fear structure, if you like, of the world that doesn't know Christ. And the temptation for us living in this world is to, uh, as I've said before, to co-opt the values, to co-opt the attitudes of this world, to think, what is the most important thing? Well, I don't want to have a bad name, so I'll keep my head down. I don't want people to speak unkindly of me, so I won't say that thing uh, to that person. And we, we tend to shy away because we are plugged into the fear structure of our world. We fear what they fear. We respect what they respect. But when we start to live that way, we're actually not fearing God. We're not putting God in first place. Peter says at the end of this verse, but in your, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Christ is the one who should be in that top spot in our minds. He is the one who should be the one that we look to as most powerful, most relevant, most, uh, most important for our lives. And every decision that we make, everything that we do should be through that lens. And that means then that we should not fear what this world fears. We should not fear shame 
because we want to live for Christ. We should not fear being spoken badly of. We should not fear the suffering that comes from living a good life in a world that wants to live out evil ways. And it's, it, it's a really powerful thing. I feel completely um, incapable as a fallen, sinful human being to communicate the depth to which this is true, that Christ should be first in our minds. He should be the one that we regard as holy. He should be the one who takes first place in our minds, commands the utmost respect, uh, has the, the most awesome, fearful uh, attitude in our hearts directed towards him. We live in a world that conditions and programs us to do anything but that. We live in a world that tries to blunt our commitment to Christ by making us fear other things, making us worried, what will people think if I say this? What will happen to me if I do this? And our commitment to Christ gets blunted. We don't give generously where we should. We don't speak up boldly where we should. And as a result, we live this cowed life. We're not fearing what God wants us to fear. And Peter doesn't want that for us. God doesn't want that for us. We should be honoring Christ the Lord as holy in the way that we live. God calls us to a fearless commitment to him. So that's part one. I hope I wasn't going for too long there. Um, I'll be quicker. Second part, faithful witness, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect. Uh, the interesting thing about this passage, I've heard this verse a hundred times, probably, no, probably more like a thousand times, to be honest. This is like the theme verse for Christian apologetics. Uh, apologetics is the idea of giving a defense, a reason's defense for, some, uh, for something. So Christian apologists are people who defend the existence of God, you know, using things like the ontological argument, the teleological argument, the cosmological argument, the argument from suffering, the argument from morality. There's all sorts of arguments. And there are lots of ways that Christians can provide a defense for the existence of God. And people who do that often use this as their theme verse. But it, in the context of this passage, it actually seems to be much more about thinking through when you're living a life in a world that hates Christ, when you're choosing to honour him above all else and that's coming out in your life and people see that and people might even attack and speak badly of you because of that, how then are you going to respond to them? How are you going to respond to someone who notices your good life in Christ and wants to understand what you're doing? Peter says, Always be prepared to make a defense, to give a reason, if you like, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do so with gentleness and respect. Uh, I think ultimately the reason for the hope that is in us is actually much more simple than any of the complicated philosophical arguments. The, the key reason why we have confidence in Christ is because Christ rose from the dead. Christ died for our sins, Christ rose from the dead and gave us a new hope in him. That's the confidence Peter had when he would have been writing this. Peter was a witness to these things and he wants Christians to have that truth at the core of who they are and what they're doing when the world starts to attack you for the hope and for the faith that you live out. And so as I think it's really powerful and really important for us to remember that we should ultimately as we live our lives in this world, as we seek to have God in that number one place, in that place of most honour, most fear, most respect, and letting that direct our lives no matter the consequences, when we live that way, the confidence to do that ultimately comes from knowing that we serve the God who has saved us from our sin, saved us from death, and has power over these things. There is nothing this world can throw at us that should be able to unseat us from that hope 
from that certainty because God is real. God is in control of this world. He sent His Son to live that perfect life for us, to die for our sins, to plug us back into Him, to give us a holy life. And if we live that truth out, it will affect everything. And people will see it. And when they see it, we should be able to gently and respectfully, not calling them an idiot like Josh L.A.A. did, um, tell them, I have confidence in God because Jesus rose from the dead. That, that's the key core hope for us as Christians. It's very simple. It's very easy to come back to. It's very true. And yet, so, we're so easily distracted from that fact. We're so easily brought off it. And finally, uh, so, sorry, faithful witness, that's, it really just boils down to something as simple as that. Have confidence that Christ rose from the dead and live as though you believe that's true. If we did that, we would be living out this passage to a T. Uh, if you want the 10-second version of this sermon, that's it. Um, but the last thing is, uh, Peter says, for it is better to suffer for doing good uh, that it, uh, if it should be God's will than for doing evil. Um, there are plenty of people, and I was like, and you know, there's a thing when people become Christians, especially if they become Calvinists, there's a thing called cage stage Calvinism, which is where people are so on fire for God, they're so new to the Christian faith that you basically just kind of have to put them in a cage for a while because they, <laughs> they, they're just too brazen with everything that they want to preach about Christ. And it can actually be unhelpful to hear people preaching for Christ that passionately because they kind of forget that you shouldn't be unpleasant while you're doing that. Um, there are other words I would want to use there, but they're not appropriate for a pulpit. Um, yeah, it's, it's not right to live out your passion for Christ in a way that, that rubs people the wrong way or puts people off. And I've come across people in my life who are so convinced that they're going to be persecuted for their faith in Christ that they basically take it upon themselves to bring that persecution about by being really just quite unpleasant people. Uh, and that's, that's not what Peter's calling us to do here. Uh, the standard for how we should live out our faith in Christ is gentleness and respect and fear of God. And uh, we've already had many passages before this unpack what that looks like in our lives. Submission, uh, suffering despite the fact that we're mistreated, all of these sorts of things. Um, so it's not good to suffer for Christ. Uh, when it's not really for Christ, when you're suffering because you have gone out of your way to uh, share Christ in such a ill-tempered, brazen, over-the-top way that people actually then are more distracted by your manner of preaching Christ than the message itself. The message is the thing that people should find offensive about us, not the way that we go about preaching the message. And that's what Peter's calling us uh, to be careful of here. It is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. If we suffer for doing evil, there's no glory in that. There's no goodness in that. That's just, that's just our sin and its natural consequences. But if we suffer for doing good, then that is blessed. That is the life that Christ showed us how to live. That is the life that God calls us to. And so, looking at everything we've looked at today, uh, I really want to encourage all of us to take stock of our lives. And I need to hear this as much as anyone, which is why I found this passage so hard to prepare. I, I struggle with this. I don't do a good job of putting Christ first. Uh, I think I probably did a better job of it when I was suffering more, um, because God brought my life into focus around Him. In, in some ways, as much as I don't want it, I also do like 
cherish the fact that God has put me through really hard things in my life so that I can come back to these truths. Um, But how about everyone here? Whereabouts are you at with your confidence in God, your fear of God, your faith in God? Are you living a life of commitment to the truth of who God is and what He has done? Are you willing to take that truth so seriously that it affects the way you live in a world that hates Christ? Are you willing to live out your truth, the truth of your faith in a world that hates Christ in a way that draws negative attention to yourself, in a way that makes it clear to the world that you are one of these people who follows Jesus, one of these Christians, one of these people who has a worldview and a religious commitment that is actually not good to our society? Uh, one that our society wants to attack and wants to reject. Uh, We've seen in the media what it looks like when people do that. And it's not fun, it's not pleasant. And yet that's the life that Christ has called us to. That's the life that he called his apostles to. And many of them were killed for their faith. That's the extent to which they were willing to live it out. Um, If we don't know a truth in our lives that is worth dying for, then we don't have a truth that is worth living for either. That's just the the nature of what it means to be in this world. There are some things that are more important than life itself, and that is Christ. And whether we're here for a short time or a long time, ultimately that's going to be the key purpose of our lives, living in a way that honors Christ, living in a way that is committed to Christ, and having the courage to live that out. And that is a powerful witness. That is the witness that saw the church go from a band of Uh, converted Jews to hundreds, thousands, ultimately millions and billions of people because they were willing to live out their faith with conviction and clarity and they did not back down when the world put pressure on them to do it. That's the Christian witness that our world needs today. That's the Christian witness that our world will need a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now. That's the Christian witness that Parramatta needs. Are we willing to live it? Are we willing to endure the suffering that will come when we do? Indeed. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that in him we have access to the truth of life itself. Uh, the, The biggest and most profound mysteries of this universe are all found in him. Uh, Father, we pray, I pray for all of us that you will help us to not be people who live for houses or jobs or comfort or security or friends or fame or anything else. Help us to be people who live for Christ. Help us to be people who follow that commitment wherever it will lead, through good times, through bad, through health, through sickness, through suffering, through glory, all of it, Lord. And please give us the strength by your Holy Spirit to live out the commitment to you that you deserve as our holy God. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.